I just finished recording with Tori. Amazing. How'd it go? It was super interesting. And now I just have one question for you. Shoot. Would you ever eat a jellyfish? A jellyfish? Are you being serious? I'm absolutely serious. I think I would at least try it after talking to Tori. Hmm. Maybe I should give it a listen too. I'm typically a pretty adventurous eater, so I think I would give it a try. This is the Facts of Life, where research-based knowledge from the Family Consumer Sciences is brought to you with life applications. I'm your host, Amanda Harner. And I'm Hope Smith, a Family Consumer Science educator and the graphic guru of the pod. Today, our guest is UGA Marine Extension Seafood Specialist, Tori Stivers. And these are the facts on Georgia Seafood. Welcome to the Facts of Life podcast, Tori. Uh, I'm really looking forward to our conversation for a few reasons. One, I really enjoy seafood. Um, and so I'm very excited to hear what you have to say about seafood and um our product that comes out of Georgia. And um, second, I'm really excited to introduce people to Marine Extension because I don't think a lot of people realize that um, just like they're not always aware of extension in general, they're not always aware that there are sea grants that um, and Georgia is fortunate to have a Marine Extension. So to get started, um, I'm just wondering how you ended up in marine extension and in your role as a seafood specialist. Great start off question, and uh, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I graduated from UGA in 1983 with a Master of Science degree, and I majored in food science and technology. So my first job as a food scientist was working for a dairy supply company in St. Louis, and I did that for about four years. Um, but I, I lived in Georgia. I grew up in Georgia, had family in Georgia. And so when I saw an Atlanta-based seafood specialist job with UGA advertised in food technology magazine, um, I decided to apply for it. So, um, it was great. I got the job despite the fact that I had never worked with seafood. And I, I told them that. And, but I said, I love seafood, just like you, Amanda. <laughs> uh, so that must have been all that was necessary. I've learned from living overseas and um, doing a lot of cross-cultural study and stuff that, um, especially in other cultures, seafood is much more expansive than we think of it in the United States. It's really kind of fascinating how much the sea provides in terms of food for the world. And um, there's some there's some very interesting components to that. Um, can you share a little bit about what Marine Extension is and how it came to be? Uh, sure. The Marine Extension Service was established as a public service unit of the University of Georgia in 1970 by our founder, Ed Chin. And its goal was to help Georgia's seafood industry improve the quality of life for coastal residents and improve the coastal economy. So it started with uh, one staff member, extension staff in Brunswick, Georgia, to help the commercial fishing industry, and then a marine education facility on Skidaway Island, which is near Savannah. And Ed Chin was also responsible for UGA's designation as the nation's 15th Sea Grant College in 1980. You already mentioned um, the fact there's land grant universities, but there's also Sea Grant universities. So uh, today, and now there's about 30, I think there's 35 Sea Grant uh, programs. Okay, that's um, what I was about to ask. Yeah, and I think it's in um, Puerto Rico and Guam as well. And and the great, so it's not just the marine coastal states, it's also um, the Great Lakes area as well. So like, the University of Michigan um, is part of a Sea Grant, right? I think so. And some of them are together, like they're a consortium. I think it's Alabama oh, Mississippi is, is kind of a combined program. 
Um, but today we have um, the Marine Extension and Georgia Sea Grant program at UGA has about 41 employees. And mm -hmm. most of them are based at the coast, either on Skidaway Island or in Brunswick. But then we also have some staff at Athens on the university campus. And then I happen to work from my home in Metro Atlanta. Yeah. So are you like the only one working in a metro area? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is that mostly because you are connected with a lot of restaurants or does it have nothing to do with that? It has nothing to do with that. When Ed Chin wanted this position, he wanted it close to the Capitol. Um, he wanted an office there, I think, because he was coming in to talk to legislators um, every mm. so often. So he wanted a, a touching off point there close by the Capitol. Um but really, you know, it hasn't been that useful. Uh, I mean, there is the majority of the seafood industry is around Metro Atlanta primarily because of the airport. Um, oh, because of the airport, not not necessarily. Why the airport? Well, uh, the sad fact is that about ninety five percent of the seafood we consume in the U.S. is imported. Mm. There's simply not enough domestic supply to meet that demand. Wow. When I first took this job 36 years ago, um, I think the amount of seafood that we consumed was about 60% imported. Uh, so that's slowly gone up over the years. Um, I think some of it could be because the U.S. has a pretty robust um, fisheries management system through NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a lot of quotas and permits and, and also states manage it as well. And the in-state waters are from the shore to three miles and then federal waters are from three miles up to 200 miles out. So I think maybe part of it is because we have a fairly robust way of um, managing and sustaining our species in our state and federal waters maybe other countries don't do that or probably the primary reason is because they're farming um, and that's another thing about 50 percent of that imported seafood is farmed mm. so they're farming and they have cheaper labor than we have so even if we were farming seafood it's really hard to compete on a commodity basis with that farmed in other countries where the labor with prices that yeah that makes sense so that's actually a really good lead in to what services Marine Extension offers. Yeah, and actually um, the part that I do uh, dealing with seafood and sustainable fisheries is, is a very small part. Um, our mission is to improve the environmental, social and economic health of Georgia's coast through research, education and extension. So uh, to accomplish that mission, we have four main focal areas. Uh, the first is environmental literacy and workforce development. Uh, the second is healthy coastal ecosystems. The third is sustainable fisheries and aquaculture. And then the last one is resilient communities and economies. And that last one is really important as we embrace the climate change and the results of that, you know, more flooding, more storms, more serious hurricanes. So helping those communities on the coast figure out how they can, um, you know, sustain themselves through some of those climate changes is, is a huge thing right now. Yeah, because I mean, it affects people's livelihoods um, in a really big way, which I'm sure as extension service working with those people in particular on the coast, um, I'm sure you guys hear all kinds of stories of how those environmental impacts are impacting people. So um, what does your job as a seafood specialist for marine extension really entail? Oh my goodness, that's that's a hard question to answer. That's a big question, right? <laughs> yeah, because it's changed so much uh, over the 36 years I've been doing this. Um, but probably in the last 11 years, one of my most important duties has been to provide seafood safety or also called HACCP, H-A-C-C-P, training. And that's required for wholesalers and processors it, to have a wholesale fish dealer's license. They have to have that training. Um, another big part of my job was when I received funding to educate medical professionals and consumers about the risk of Vibrio vulnicus 
Vibria vulnificus infection from eating raw oysters. That's like and, a mouthful. Okay, yes. can you say it one more time. And, and Vibria vulnificus is a type of bacteria. Um, it's in the Vibrio genus. Um, but vulnificus is for people who are immunocompromised, it is very dangerous. dangerous. Yes. So uh, one of the ways that they can contract that is eating raw oysters. If they cook the oysters, it kills the bacteria. Um, another way they can contract those infections is being in a coastal area. And if they have an open wound or sore or they're fishing and they cut themselves because the bacteria is, is not a result of pollution. It's a natural inhabitant of the marine waters. Um, and it tends to be higher in the warmer weather times. So, so like in the summer when people are typically at the beach or oh, at the coast mm -hmm. in the water. So that's another way that they can contract infections. So um, it's it can be from consumption. It's about 50 mm, percent mortality. Oh, when wow. They become infected. Um, it's usually a little bit. That's I think where some botulism. Uh, oh yeah, it's it's serious stuff, and it can it can happen very quickly. People get very sick very quickly. They're almost all the cases are seen in a hospital ER because wow. they're they're very sick. So um, the result of that funding was the development of the SafeOysters.org website. Um, there's information there in English, Vietnamese, and Spanish. It's for the industry, uh, healthcare professionals, consumers. Um, so that was, that was something I did for many, many years when I had funding to do that. I'm also always looking for ways to promote Georgia seafood, um, and try to keep it in the state and help people start and expand their seafood businesses. Can you expand a little bit about why it's important to keep it in the state and why some of our, um, fishermen are going out of state with their product? Sure, there's a really easy answer to that. And it's if you look at a map and you look at the interstate system, you see that I-95 runs from Florida all the way up to the Northeast, right along the coast, right along the Georgia coast. So let's take uh, shrimp, for instance. Um, shrimpers are, are small time operators and they have to have a dock to unload their shrimp. They usually, there's usually not that many shrimpers that own their own dock and they unload it and then they sell it. So a shrimper has to bring it up to a dock and offload it. And then the dock tries to find buyers for it. Usually the docks do not have the resources to freeze the shrimp. So we're talking about a highly perishable product. Right. So the fact that there's huge markets in the Northeast and South in Florida and the interstate runs right up along the coast means that those trucks can just, when they're making their run north and south, they can just pull up to a shrimp dock, offload all that, and a day or two later be up in northeast markets. Wow. Yeah, so it's very you, interesting. Yeah, I mean, you don't see that direct, for, to come, for it to come into Atlanta, you've got to go up 95, uh, or I-95 to I-16, cut over, and then 75 you know, it's, it's just not very handy. And then they're going to have huge truckloads of that shrimp. So they have to have somebody who can buy that volume in the metro Atlanta area. So unfortunately, that's why a lot of it ends up going out of state. The other reason is that not all of the seafood that we produce is popular in our state. Um, yeah. You can't force Georgia consumers to eat hard clams when that's more of um, a specialty item in the Northeast coast. Mm -hmm. um, same with blue crabs, you know, hard blue crabs. There's uh, a huge demand for that in the Chesapeake Bay area. So you can get higher prices, you know, when you ship it there. And if there's not a demand here, you know, why not? Yeah. So you may not, I mean, I'm going to ask you this question. You may not have the answer. Um, do you happen to know what percentage of the blue crabs that are served in the Chesapeake Bay are actually from Georgia? 
I, I don't know. Uh, I can't give you exact numbers, but I do know that I've talked to some crabbers before um, that had visitors from uh, come to Georgia vacationing and they stopped by the plant and uh, just to see it because, you know, they thought, well, I like blue crab, but they made a comment that, well, Georgia blue crab's not as good as Maryland crab. And um, the owner told them, well, I hate to tell you this, but I, I ship a lot of them to Maryland. So you may be eating blue crab when you think you're eating Maryland blue crab. Yeah, I, I think Georgia. that's so interesting and it's enlightening because, um, you know, I mean, there are places like Maryland that are known for certain things and you're expecting to get a certain commodity when you're there. And um, I could see where a consumer might be a little uh, ruffled <laughs> at that. And at the same time, it's kind of, um, I guess it, it's eye-opening to see how sad it is because you're going to go all the way to the somewhere else have this wonderful vacation include that in the vacation when you could have had it closer by all along um is is always like oh <laughs> good to know and at the same time spend a lot more for that crap <laughs> yep you could have eaten it in georgia and then you plan that trip to maryland <laughs> right <laughs> it would have been warmer <laughs> um so let's shift gears a little since you are a food scientist and um, your position in extension revolves around the food aspect of um, all of what they do. So uh, we know as nutritionists and as food scientists that um, diet, uh, seafood is a very important part of the diet, not just for cultural reasons and different places in the world. And even on the coast, like every coastal city in the U S like seafood is very important to us culturally, but nutritionally speaking, it is also very beneficial for us. And, uh, the dietary guidelines for Americans recommends that adults should be eating at least eight ounces of a variety of seafood each week. So that's basically like two, at least two servings. Um, can you talk a little bit about what seafood can provide nutritionally that maybe other things don't provide as well? Uh, sure. And thank you for bringing the, um, the recommendation out because, um, those dietary guidelines that are from 2020 to 2025, like you said, it did recommend, uh, at least eight ounces, which depending on how much you eat per meal is two to three servings. And the sad fact I was looking at those the other day is that 80% of consumers don't eat that much. Yeah. They do not eat that recommended amount. And I, I was just floored by that. I probably eat way more. <laughs> I probably eat their share to make up for it. But um, yeah. Not that at is, certain times of the year, for sure I do. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that is a huge gap to make up. And it's an important gap because... Um, like meat and poultry, seafood has high, very high quality proteins. It's all the essential amino acids that you need and almost no carbohydrates. So for people who are watching their carbs, you know, unless you're adding breading or whatever, okay, there's, there's no carbs in seafood. Um, but probably the biggest advantage seafood has over um, meat and poultry is the type of fat that it has. It has very, well, it's very, it's fairly low in fat to begin with. Some species are higher in fat, but the type of fat it has, almost no saturated fat, very little saturated fat. And that's what meat and poultry have more of. So saturated fats are bad because they can elevate your blood um, cholesterol levels and that can lead to clogged arteries. Um, but the main type of fat in seafood, which is unsaturated fat, also has omega-3 fatty acids in it. And those have been shown to reduce the risk of strokes and heart attacks. Um, there's other sources of omega-3 fatty acids, but seafood probably has, you know, the higher amounts of omega-3 fatty acids. Yeah. So in addition to that, it's a very nutrient rich food. It's a good source of iodine, um, you know, that helps prevent thyroid problems, um, vitamins D and B12, um, also calcium. If you're eating like say canned salmon where, you know, the bones are very soft or you can crush them, you can eat the bones and get some added calcium. 
Um, and then also it's high in iron and oysters are very high in zinc. Zinc, which is a really hard one to get a lot of times, actually. The zinc is a little challenging to get in diet. Um, yeah, the vitamin D is a good one to bring out too, because a lot of people struggle to get enough vitamin D and um, we don't always explore some of the other sources that that comes from that we might enjoy um, that just where it's naturally there as opposed to um, taking a supplement because, or even beyond a supplement, like um, having a food that has had it injected into it, um, which is essentially somewhat almost like having a supplement, but a lot of studies related to supplements have shown that um, you're just, you get more benefit out of the complexity of the food itself than just isolating the vitamin and taking it that way. And there's still a lot that um, food science is learning about that. But um, I think that's one point to kind of bring up in this conversation is that um, not only are there some of is seafood rich in some of these things that are harder to find and with the omega-3s and low in saturated fat and um, having those benefits that are really good for the cardiovascular system and therefore like other health, chronic health conditions um, beyond just heart disease. But um, the other vitamins and minerals that are in these products are not as easy to obtain in diet in other places. Um, and yet they're they're essential and very much needed. So one of the things that I thought was super interesting about a commodity that we have on the coast of Georgia is something called jelly balls. <laughs> Not only is it a fun name, but I was like, oh, this is, this is really fascinating. So um, what are they? Let's start there. <laughs> well, um, jelly balls is the term that the local harvesters use for cannonball jellyfish. We have a certain type of jellyfish that we see in our waters. Uh, sometimes it's present in great quantities. You might see it on the beach if you're down there, but it's uh, different than people's typical perceptions of jellyfish with the long dangly tendrils. Mm -hmm. This, it, this is more of a ball shaped, like a cannonball. That's why it's called cannonball jellyfish. The Latin name is uh, Stomolophus meligris. And mm. I probably didn't say that right. Stomophilus meligris is the scientific name. Um, but they have been harvested. Oh, I, I'm trying to put together the history of the jellyfish industry in Georgia. We have the only domestic jellyfish processor in the U.S. Really? Huh. Mm -hmm. I think he started operating maybe in the eight, late 80s or 90s. That's something I was hoping to do before I retire is, is write the history of the jellyfish uh, industry in Georgia. It's processed for human food. Mm. I mean, maybe there's some people that are processing it for um, pharmaceutical use or bio ingredients, but I'm not familiar with that. Um, so they salt them to preserve them. Um, and then that gives it about a two year shelf life and their primary customers are Asian countries. Um, before you eat this salted jellyfish, you need to rehydrate it and get rid of, um, some of the salt. And then it's typically sliced. It's raw and you slice it and you can add other seasonings, other vegetables to it. I believe in China, it's used sort of as a um, typical dish at a wedding feast. Um, in some other Asian countries, it's not elevated to that kind of special status. It's more of a um, just a routine thing you might eat a couple of times a week. Um, it does not have a texture like octopus. Um, it's a very fragile texture. Huh. And if you try to cook it, you have to be very careful because it'll just kind of dissolve. It has a lot of collagen in it. Um, it's not high quality protein, but it's still, it does have a lot of protein in it. 
So the processor on the coast um, processes that we've had a hard time with the anti-trade um, war between China and us. Um, so some of his um, customers that he exported the product to um, haven't been ordering it from him because it's greatly increased the price with the tariffs. So I've been trying to help them find domestic buyers for it, you know, that would um, eliminate the, the need to export it. And frankly, it could be that it's exported to Asian countries, rehydrated, further processed, packaged, and then shipped back into the U.S. and sold in Asian markets. We, we don't know, but that maybe could be happening. I mean, that's a long journey <laughs> to go yeah. all the way around the world and back um, just to be consumed in the U.S. So have you ever tried it? Yes. Yes. Like what would you, com can you compare it to anything? Not really. So the flavor is bland. The flavor mm -hmm. um, is whatever you add to it. Um, people always laugh when I tell them this, but being a food scientist, I was always descriptive with texture and flavors. To me, what it reminded me of the first bite into it was a crunch. It seemed to me similar to like if you had a very thin shard of glass and you kind of chomp down on it, a very, huh. a very thin piece, but it has that first unique crunch and then the rest of it it just mushes down, but it's not really um, spongy. It's not a dense texture. Uh, it's a pretty fragile texture. Um, I would have expected it to be, I mean, in my mind, I would just have thought it would be similar to octopus or something like that, but octopus, uh, well, it's fragile but when you cook it, like in terms of it can get very chewy very quickly, um, but it always has some kind of bite to like meatiness kind of bite to it. Right. Um, it has more of a substance. And I think it's because it's more um, muscle like tissue, whereas jellyfish are predominantly water. And, and then what's left after you remove the water is a lot of it's collagen. It's gelatinous. Yeah. Interesting. So it's almost like a jello with a hard film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and it has a very, um, we have a researcher that um, got a USDA grant to study it. And so it is, it is sort of like a, a, a gelatin. He, they can make some um, not really strong gels. It's just like post-it notes, you know, post-it notes were a, a failure because the glue wasn't really strong, but it was still useful. So I think yeah. that the same way you may not have, it may not make a gel that will stand up, let's say like a cup of jello at room temperature, hmm. but there's still some uses for it as a thickener. I think it's fascinating. I like, like, I wonder like thickener similar to, you know, how okra has kind of that. Gooey that's thickener. true. It has that. That's a very good analogy. And when they're processing the jellyfish, they have to wash it and wash it and wash it because it has a lot of slime mm. that the animal produces, which I never thought about that. But yeah, that slimy texture with the okra. But it goes really nice in like a jambalaya. <laughs> like, I'm wondering if they're the same jellyfish that I remember as a kid seeing on the Carolina coast all the time that would like wash up. They're kind of grayish when they've been sitting there for a while and these are kind of um, tea colored. Yeah, um, I think, so, I think it's the it, same. So they have, wh which Carolina, North or South? Um, both. Because <laughs> South Carolina does have some, so the <sighs> jellyfish are fascinating and we don't know enough about them. We don't know why they occur in huge quantities sometimes. And then for two or three years, they just kind of disappear. Hmm. We, don't know enough about it. It's not a, um, a federal fishery. It is a state fishery. Um, and we do for, for fishermen to harvest them, they have to have a permit from the Department of Natural Resources, uh, Coastal Resources Division. And the permit has to say who they're selling it to. So in other words, you just can't go and harvest them and let them go and sit somewhere and rot because they're highly perishable. So South Carolina, there was an effort to try to develop um, a jellyfish processing facility there. And the place where they were going to do it was in a very um, 
a nice area. People had a lot of nice homes and they were concerned about the smell that it would generate because they are oh. highly perishable. You know, that's why you saw I, I can guess what area it was. <laughs> you might be able to. I could probably find you some uh, newspaper articles that um, yeah. it was quite heated and uh, so they stopped. Uh, South Carolina didn't allow that to happen. Um, Very interesting. Yeah, I most of my childhood, we would go to South Carolina coast wine. But um, as I got older, we went to uh, North Carolina more frequently. But um, yeah, because I grew up in Charlotte. So um, North Carolina wasn't always the most accessible so as, as much as like, um, some of the South Carolina options. So, well, they also find, um, cannonball jellyfish in the Gulf as well. There used mm. to be, um, a processor in Florida as well. Um, Florida was allowing commercial harvest there. They were, um, limiting the size of the boat. It was a much smaller boat. So they couldn't haul in uh, as much as we could in Georgia with one trip. Um, but they came to kind of the same conclusion. It, it was probably cheaper for jellyfish to be processed in, in other parts of the world where the labor was much less expensive. less expensive. And also the type of jellyfish, like um, some consumers prefer the really big ones and ours were were not you know the the head of it wasn't as big as some of the others like the moon jellyfish hmm. so that kind of had a a hand in it too as to why um they didn't keep processing and, and selling them um you know you don't have a customer <laughs> you know why are you doing this yeah yeah it's kind of one of the things i don't know why this is coming to mind it's probably because I just saw something about the most expensive ice cream in the world being like $6,000. And um, it's made out of really, really pricey items, but strange things, right? And well, things that you wouldn't think of in an ice cream. It's not so much that they're strange. It's just that they, you wouldn't think of them being in an ice cream. Um, but it's making me wonder randomly if, if ever, anybody's ever used jellyfish to make ice cream <laughs> of course i had to actually look up to see if jellyfish had ever been used for ice cream and the answer is yes and it gets even better not just any ice cream not just jellyfish ice cream it's glow in the dark that's right people glow-in-the-dark ice cream made out of jellyfish protein. There's one uh, memory supplement out there that claims to have originally used something from jellyfish. Huh. Um, there's all kinds of, you know, collagen supplements that you can take. Uh, I think people take for their joints. Mm -hmm. So it might be more lucrative to sell the jellyfish for that kind of bio uh, pharmaceutical type or supplement food supplement instead yeah. of as a food ingredient. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Or even skincare it, products, you know, you can, you pay oh, yeah. for skincare products. Skincare for sure. What other types of seafood are native to Georgia? I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> Oops. Because I hope to show you some. Let's see. So we definitely have probably our most valuable commodity is um, in terms of value and volume, our shrimp. Mm. And this is a picture of some head on white shrimp. Um, don't have a picture of the brown shrimp. They are usually smaller uh, and they come in during the white shrimp row season. So uh, the white shrimp, the row um, on the white shrimp, usually, you know, that's more of a lucrative thing. So people tend to want to harvest the white shrimp. Mm -hmm. um, then we've talked before about the blue crab. So we have blue crab, we have hard blue crab, we have um, peelers and soft um, shell crab as well. Um, we no longer have uh, picked crab. Um, we used to have processing plants on the coast that would um, 
cook the crab and then they had people that to pick the meat out of it. If you've ever picked meat out of a blue crab, you know how tedious that is. Yeah, it is. It's pretty, <laughs> but I love crab, so I'm willing to do it. You're willing to do it. Okay. You need to come to the coast and start a crab picking plant then. That would yeah. be wonderful. Though I will say my favorite crab is Dungeness crab. Um, I feel like you get so much meat for the work. Yes, <laughs> I would agree with that. We also have, we talked about um, the hard clams and the fact that they're not very popular um, in the Southeast, not like, um, you know, raw oysters. In the Northeast, they have uh, raw clam bars. And so a lot of the Georgia clams get shipped to the Northeast, um, some even to Canada, where there's a bigger demand for them. Um, we are also uh, have oysters. Now, these are nice, um, beautiful, large oysters. These are Georgia oysters. Mm. Um, however, Georgia oysters growing in the wild are all clumped together and they're not this pretty um, shape and, mm. and round size that looks like something you would want to eat on a raw bar. Yeah. But our shellfish research lab on Skidaway Island is working with different methods. We're doing cages now. The Department of Natural Resources has finally allowed um, caged oysters. Huh. Um, traditionally, they've only been on the ground. And so we're working with caged oysters. We're working a lots of um, to trying to get that industry growing that these are to, to do these single shell oysters like this, these beautiful oysters to compete with um, other states. Yeah. Interesting. We also harvest um, some fin fish. There's not much just because it's not as lucrative um, as shrimp. You know, shrimp is the commodity that we eat the most of seafood. We eat um, at, on average five pounds of shrimp per capita. Um, so, and we don't have salmon's another popular one, but we don't grow salmon in Georgia. We don't have salmon here, but these are um, some beautiful vermilion snapper, um, mm. similar to red snapper. Um, we also have, these were not harvested um, from Georgia, but that's mahi-mahi, also known as dolphin fish. But mahi-mahi. That can be caught off the coast as well. But this is a good place to talk about one of your major accomplishments during your career yeah. with Marine Extension um, was the Georgia Seafood Directory. So it is accessible to anybody online. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the intent of the directory and how Georgians can utilize it? Sure. Um, so it's georgiaseafood.org is the URL that's really easy to remember. Um, and it was originally developed to be um, a list of wholesalers, um, Georgia wholesalers. You know, so many people buy seafood from someone out of state. And so just to let them know that there are wholesalers in Georgia that they could tap. Um, and so it's voluntary. Uh, it doesn't have all of the wholesalers in there. It's, it's not a comprehensive listing of wholesalers. Um, the reason that we started it is because a lot of um, coastal or, or small wholesalers didn't have the resources to develop a website. And mm -hmm. if you can't find somebody on the internet anymore, I mean, they just don't exist. <laughs> Not really, but <laughs> yeah, if you can't Google their name and find them somewhere. Um, so I've had a lot of feedback from those small companies saying that, yes, people are finding them in the directory. Okay. Um now you can have Facebook pages, which are, are not as um, expensive or difficult to maintain. Um, because of consumers' interest in, in local seafood, we've added a retailer section. It's not as robust, but um, so if you're just a consumer, you can go and click on the retail list. And once again, it is not a comprehensive list. I don't have every restaurant. Um, right. well, actually, there's well, no, there's one that down in Savannah that's um, cooks the seafood. I think you can also buy it raw from them, but um, it's a takeout. So I did, I did not have um, the manpower, the woman power to keep um, keep it updated and to add all of the seafood restaurants. But it's a source if you're down at the coast and you want to buy some seafood, you know, maybe you can um, find a retailer there that you can purchase. Yeah, and I mean, I would assume... In that kind of market, if one retailer doesn't have it, but they have a friend who they know does, they may 
turn you in that direction, even if that person is not listed on um, the directory. Yes, that that's true. I mean, they're they're going to try um, the one I'm thinking about, and it's Savannah. Um, her husband is a crabber, um, mm-hmm. so she started her um, takeout restaurant, you know, as a means to selling that. But she also buys shrimp from local shrimpers and um, other seafood too. Yeah. Um, so I'm hoping to get to Savannah this summer, but we'll see what happens. Um, oh yeah, you definitely need to talk to me about uh, good restaurants. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. The last time we went, um, it would have been helpful to have um, the connection with you already, but <laughs> I want to pivot a little bit to the hazard analysis critical control point training, which you mentioned at the beginning of the show. Um, so can you kind of explain a little bit more what this is um, and why it's important. And then um, I know you don't have hard stats for how the training has really helped with some reducing foodborne illness in the state, but if you could share what you do know about that, that would be great. So HACCP is a preventative food safety system. It was pioneered actually by NASA and the Pillsbury company to produce safe food for the space program. Um, I did not know that. (laughs) Yes. Well, you do not want your astronauts to be sick in space. So that would not be good. So um, it requires that food processors analyze their products and to to determine if there are any significant hazards in in either inherently in the food they're bringing in or how they're processing it. Mm. And so if they do identify some significant hazards, then they have to identify processing steps to control those hazards. And then at each um, processing step where there's a critical control point, CCP, you develop a critical limit. So you can monitor if that CCP goes haywire, if it goes beyond that critical limit. Um, And those uh, critical limits are regularly monitored. So you can figure out, you know, it's not like you just say, oh, you're supposed to be doing this. There, there are daily or maybe even hourly monitoring records to ensure that significant hazard is controlled. Um, and then there's verification. Uh, oh, so if it's something does happen where it exceeds a crit- critical limit, then you immediately stop the process right there and then segregate whatever food product was made when it exceeded those critical limits and and figure out, is it still safe? You know, there's various tools you can use. Is it safe? Can I still sell it? Or no, I need to do something else with it or possibly destroy it because it's not safe. And then you look at your process to see what happened. You know, you, you correct not only the product, but then what went haywire with the process. Hmm. And then you also have verification records to that ensure that the whole HACCP plan is working correctly. Um, Seafood is not, seafood was kind of the guinea pig for this. I mean, like I said, they were using this for, to produce uh, safe food for um, the space program. And then uh, I think low acid canned foods may have been the next one that was using Mm -hmm. HACCP principles. Don't quote me on that. But the seafood industry um, back in the eighties was getting a lot of flack because people were claiming it wasn't inspected like other commodities, like USDA has an inspector in a meat processing plant anytime they're processing. And same with poultry. Mm-hmm. And seafood falls under Food and Drug Administration. So they did not have that same type of inspection. Mm-hmm. So um, the seafood industry really asked for this. They, they wanted something to um, make people feel more comfortable consuming seafood that it was safe. So in um, 1997, in December of 1997, is when the seafood HACCP regulation became effective. Um, And it requires that at least one employee that works for the company be trained in seafood HACCP specifically, not just general HACCP, but seafood HACCP, Mm. or you can hire a consultant that has had that training. So only a seafood HACCP trained individual can develop a HACCP plan or modify it and conduct the um, at least weekly record reviews. So it's a very important component. It's a 
prior to seafood HACCP, the industry was more reactive. Um, when a food inspector would come in, they would get what's called a snapshot um, inspection. All they knew about was what they saw was going on in the plant at the time of the visit. Whereas with HACCP, because of the records, um, an inspector can come in and just flip through the records and find out what happened a month prior. Mm. Or they can look and say, oh, I see, you know, last week you had a critical limit that was exceeded. Um, and your corrective action said you did this, this, or this. So uh, it really gives the inspector a better idea of what happens in the plant overall, and, and particularly when they're not there. Interesting. Yeah, I could see where that would be super helpful. It's a little surprising that 97 is the date attached to that. I mean, that it took that long. Um, I mean, do you have, do you know when some of the laws came out for like poultry and beef and the other types of processing? They came out soon after that. They, so the rest of the industry, um, uh, did have to fall under HACCP, but of course now it's under FISMA. Um, so Food Safety Modernization Act, um, a lot of those, I think, because if, if you're adhering to the seafood safety regulation, then you don't fall under the FISMA regulations. There may be some overlap, like the transportation rule and some others, but um, I think the other commodities, I think meat, I'm not sure about poultry, um, adopted this HACCP um, system for their regulations soon after. Because they thought it was more rigorous? I think it's more effective. proactive. It puts the mm -hmm. onus on the company to determine potential hazards and significant hazards. That's where it should be because the company knows their products and their process better than a food safety inspector. Yeah. So they're more, they're, they may not want to do it. They may not, they, they might prefer an inspector come in and tell them, no, you're not doing this right. You need to do this, but they need to be proactive and they need to try to anticipate the problems before they happen. So in terms of the consumer, it actually, um, in a lot of ways, consumers should feel good about that process being in place because it puts more of the burden on the provider um, so that they have to be very proactive about what they are providing to the consumer and be thinking through it before things happen. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. And you'll, you'll see, I mean, it's like anything else. It's on a spectrum. There are some, I won't say just seafood companies. There are some food companies who go far and above what the federal or state regulations require. Yeah. And then there are some who are just barely scooting by. I mean, it is a tool to ensure food safety, to help ensure food safety, but it's only good if you use it. So how does that like translate when we have so much seafood that's coming in from overseas? So the importers do fall under um, the seafood HACCP regulation. Okay. It's obviously a lot different because they don't have a facility here being inspected, although FDA is um, opening offices internationally to try to get a handle on more, um, not just seafood production, but food production general in general that's in other countries. But there are still some requirements that importers have to go by. Um, they have to get the HACCP plan from the facility or they could do, there's, there's several different ways they could do it. Um, so they could go and do um, an inspection themselves or their audit to be sure that they're maintaining um, not only the HACCP records, but the sanitation control um, procedure records as well. That's encouraging, actually. <laughs> I, was, I was not expecting that to be the answer. So I'm glad I asked it because, so, you know, somebody's going to ask it along the way. So um Glad I thought to ask. That yeah, and we don't get too much in too much detail, like I said, because there's so many different options. When we teach seafood HACCP courses, um, there's so many importers, and then there's so many different options. I mean, the people that come to our course tend to be um, more people that are processing. They have a facility, 
and they want to, you know, ensure the safety of what they're doing and um, in their in their facility here in the U.S. Unfortunately, it's not just seafood specific, but it's food safety in general. We can count cases of people who are sick if they're diagnosed and it's a reportable illness, but we can't count the number of people who don't get sick. So that yeah. is a real frustration with any kind of food safety regulation is, is it effective and how, how do we know? How do you measure that? <clears throat> we tend to think as consumers that it's, it's the last thing we ate. It's the last meal we ate. There was something in that that was contaminated or what have you. And that's what made you sick. But we know that some of these things, like it could have been five meals ago. <laughs> Um, that is and, such a good point. And, and with seafood, um, oysters, if you're eating, uh, oysters, there's a requirement for restaurants. If you're buying it from restaurants or if you're selling it at a retail store that they keep the tag that comes with the oysters, there should be a shellfish tag that says where it was harvested from, um, the dealers, uh, the dealer. And that requirement is to keep those tags for 90 days. After you sold that bag or those few oysters in the store, and the reason is, is because they can be um, a source of hepatitis A virus, and that can take up to 90 days. That the longest incubation period on record was 90 days. So wow. can you imagine trying to remember what you ate three months ago? 90 days ago. Yeah, unless you were happened to be from Atlanta and on vacation at the coast 90 days ago. Well, thank you so much, Tori. I really appreciate it. Um, I think a lot of other people are going to appreciate this interview and all that you had to say about um, not just the industry, but some of the things that um, just are helpful to be thinking about in terms of nutrition and foodborne illness and all that kind of stuff. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and, and uh, your listeners, our viewers, and um, yeah, just thank you for this opportunity. Research-based resources referenced in and related to this episode of Facts of Life podcast can be found in the episode notes in the description. The views and thoughts expressed in this video podcast are the speaker's own and do not necessarily represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of the University of Georgia or the guests' organizations and or employers. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. The University of Georgia name, as well as those of guests' organizations, and all forms and abbreviations are the property of its owner and its use does not imply endorsement of or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. These are the Facts of Life. Thanks for joining us. Check out our website at factsoflife.extension.uga.edu. That's F-A-C-S-of-life.extension.uga.edu.